welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode, I interview Maddie Clifford, aka Flirt Cobain, aka Maddie Lines. Maddie is a writer, a musician, and an activist based in Oakland, California, and she's also the deputy press secretary for the Debt Collective, the nation's first debtors union. Thanks for listening. Solidarity forever. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. What's Flirt Cobain all about? That's just a that's just a nickname. Doesn't have any meaning. It's pretty catchy. Yes. Yeah, so basically, um, I'm actually originally from Seattle, Washington. I grew up in the city of Seattle, so I grew up on Capitol Hill, Central District area. Um, I mean, I'm a little older than the grunge era. I wasn't really like in there because I was pretty young, but. Um, one of my friends just gave me that nickname. <laughs> so I just, I like it. It sounds, it has a catch to it, you know? So it is, I kept yeah. it on Twitter. <laughs> That's good. What's your, uh, well, talk to me a little bit about um, West Coast politics, Seattle politics, or Oakland politics. What's, what's uh, you know, some current events, some current political issues going on in the West Coast? Is there uh, no wildfires or nothing like that this year? Not yet. I mean, there's still time. It's definitely um, the dry season, which usually lasts um, through September. And some it, sometimes it can stay, for example, in Oakland, it can stay sunny till the end of November even. So I'm not exactly sure what will happen with wildfires. But the biggest things I think that are happening right now, would I would say like in Oakland and in Seattle is the housing crisis. I think we're really... Uh, coming up on a couple, um, you know, the end of eviction moratoriums. One is in Oakland. I was actually just reading a headline that there has been a 70% increase in homeless uh, youth that are attending Oakland public schools. So that's a huge problem. And also there's a big issue around, um, you know, obviously uh, police and accountability and lack thereof. I'm an abolitionist. So there's a lot of really bad situations happening. I don't know if folks have heard about this uh, Seattle police officer who he wasn't the one who actually did it, but um, his one of his fellow officers hit and killed a young woman in her 20s that was a graduate student. And another officer is caught on body cam laughing about it and saying that her life is not, you know, she's just like a regular person, just write a check, implying that she's just not worth anything. So lots and lots of issues happening. But I would say two key issues is the housing crisis and also, um, you know, 
obviously policing and kind of this resurgence of this tough on crime propaganda that's going on. Yeah, I've tweeted this before. Uh, the United States is the only country in the world, at least that I know of, where two politicians get on stage and debate each other on who's going to be tougher on crime, which is completely meaningless. It's completely ridiculous. Uh, the United States is already a police state. It's a, um, a state that leads the world in mass incarceration, both in number and rate. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how some people buy it or what it even means, but I mean, we can't be any more of a police state. I mean, militarization of the police, uh, the violence uh, committed against um, U.S. citizens with the police is up or near the top of um, the world. Uh, and just that, um, you know, basically, re- regardless of what party's in power, uh, I think Biden has uh, already made his support known to the police who's also the architect of the 19 or one of the architects of the 1994 crime bill um, that uh, disproportionately locked up black people across the country. Um, I just read a quote in a solo pod that I did about a month ago uh, when he was questioned about, um, you know, his police policies. And he says, we don't want to fund the police. We want to fund them, fund them, fund them. So it doesn't really look like we're having any choice between the two um, you know, authoritarian parties. I think that we are a one-party state. A, um, we're, we're the business. We have the we have a business party. You know, one-party state, the business party with two factions, and um, really the only difference is uh, maybe some stuff on abortion and rhetoric, um, but basically just shifting corporate uh, business interests based on the funding. So I guess. The banking uh, industry tends to fund Democrats. They prefer Biden and Obama over their competitors, although they do split up um, their contributions pretty equally because no matter what and who gets into the White House, uh, they're going to have an ally there. Um, but the uh, yeah, the differences between, um, outside of some abortion and some talk on rhetoric, the differences between the two parties, um, you'd have to f- get out of a microscope just to kind of find some subtle differences so what do you think about the two-party state, the duopoly, or maybe even as I see it and many have um, phrased it in the past, it's a one-party state, the business party. Yeah, that's very true. I I think that when I was growing up in Seattle, you know, it is a very like the West Coast is known as like this liberal safe haven. And um, obviously, you know, folks in the South are dealing with very draconian policies and uh, lots of rollbacks on their rights. But I think one of the things that you learn pretty quickly on the West Coast is how similar there actually there are actually a lot more similarities than you would imagine when it as it pertains to the actual effects of policies and how much like you were saying uh, it goes back to who has the money it's like even like moving from Seattle to the Bay Area you know it's almost like it's still the gold rush but the gold rush now is tech and there's tech there's a big tech industry in Seattle as well but um just California being a state that's heavily run off of you know prison money and prison labor it's a lock em up state there's very very many people that are incarcerated and California spends exceedingly more to incarcerate people than to educate them, to house them, to uh, make sure they have proper health care, all of the above. And so you start to see like, wait a second, wait a second. I'm also reading a great book that I highly recommend called The Writers Come Out at Night, which is actually about the history of the Oakland Police Department. 
And one of the things that's really fascinating about this book is it's kind of it's first of all, it has highly high level investigative reporting about just the history of the OPD from even the 1800s all the way until the present. And essentially, it's an example of national policing and a lot of um, the policies and, and basically the foundation of the Oakland Police Department is was very much um, a reflection of the Deep South. And so a lot of the ways that the police function, the corruption, the um, racial profiling, all of that, there were just very close proximity with the Deep South. Sometimes even in the early days, there were uh, Southerners that came to Oakland to train officers and whatnot. And so Oakland, as well as San Francisco, has one of the most corrupt police departments. And the city of Oakland, had the Oakland Police Department has been under federal investigation for um, many, many years now, since the early 2000s. And the Oakland, the city of Oakland pays $1 million because of this investigation. <laughs> so the citizens have taxpayers. to pay for it. Right. Taxpayers, exactly. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I would say grow, just being in the wet, on the West Coast, it, it really, it's an eye-opener for sure. <laughs> so I got to sat here, I read, read this out yesterday and tweeted it out, but holding Biden accountable, obviously this isn't, you can't blame everything on the president, although uh, Joe Biden is right. no friend of the Necessary Illusionist podcast. But anyways, under Joe Biden, uh, who's presiding over this uh, cost of living crisis that's going on in America as uh, student loan repayment begins uh, next month. Um, I think uh, Vice President Harris said something about the um, average American can't afford a $500 emergency expense. And at the same, in the, out of the other side of her mouth, uh, you know, she's part of the administration that's going to be increasing, or I'm sorry, it's going to be starting up after almost four calendar years, starting up student loan payments where uh, it's not uncommon to have a $500 bill per month uh, in perpetuity for possibly years or even decades, 25 years. Nobody really knows. Uh, I've read some public service loan forgiveness stuff um, where essentially if you work for the government for 10 years, you get your loans forgiven, but in the small print, uh, I've done some research. Um, I think less than 1% of applications are accepted. So there's a lot of false hope in this student loan um, program. I think the only way to actually, you know, get some justice for student debtors, and that's kind of as we segue into kind of what your role is and sounds like, you know, as your uh, involvement in the, in the debt collective. But anyways, I wanted to read the stat here. Under Joe Biden, child poverty has skyrocketed 139% the largest single increase in American history. Uh, and that's obviously since the, um, I guess, the childhood credits or whatever, um, that, that program was uh, ended. So uh, I do want to get to also, um, yeah, I, I guess the, the um, police and how it works. I mean, we, uh, we fund the police taxpayers to essentially commit violence against us. Um, I think police preserve disorder and protect property. I've, uh, tweeted that a number of times. Police are also um, class traders. They're frequently involved in breaking up resistance movements, active activist movements, um, you know, civil disobedience, um, and those sorts of efforts. They're typically involved security forces in a violent labor history involved in using violence to break up um, worker strikes and resistance movements against the capitalist class. So that's why I say, you know, the, the cops and the police 
are um, class traders. And we also, not only, I guess, with the uh, million dollars a year that, you know, Oakland taxpayers are paying for this investigation, um, but we're, we're paying the police to essentially use and commit violence against us. And then when they victimize us and beat us up and, and cause us bodily harm, the taxpayers also come in and pay the lawsuits off. So, I mean, what a system. There's no accountability. And then let's get to the investigations as well. Um, we have police uh, investigating the police. And a lot of times, you know, they find no wrongdoing. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I'm definitely in favor of defunding the police. I'm also open to completely abolishing the police. But what I would like to do is I'm an anarcho-syndicalist. So I like to have society organized around democratically um, democratic workplaces and communities. So I think the only way to have true accountability would be to have community oversight over the police, if we're even going to have them at all. That can be a debate. That can be a vote. I'm open to abolishment. I'm open to certainly defunding them. I mean, we're not a police state. But uh, if we're going to have true accountability, we need independent, um, maybe community oversight and investigations, certainly not in-house or even just um, even federal investigations where you have police and it's seemingly like a brotherhood we have police investigating the police and a lot of times again no wrongdoing here nothing to see here you know that kind of stuff yeah exactly and one of the great things about the debt collective which is um, the nation's first debtors union and i've been tweeting a lot about it and i think that's where we started to like kind of converge on twitter um a lot of people know us as an organization about canceling student loan debt but we're so much more than that because we actually work to cancel um, medical debt, carceral debt, rent debt, school lunch debt. And it really has a lot of parallels with abolition because we think of abolition as the absence of police and prison, for example. But it's also the presence of social goods that we're currently being denied. Right. So when it comes to housing, we're being denied housing, we're being denied medical care, we're being denied education, which is directly tied to whether or not someone is going to be incarcerated. Right. The vast majority of people that are incarcerated, I think it's upwards of 60 to 70 percent are reading, are illiterate. Right. They're having trouble reading and writing um, as well as food, as well as, you know, so so what we're really working towards is we're using the debt itself as less leverage because of the fact that we've moved from a welfare state to a debt fair state. So now in order to access housing, a lot of people are going into debt. Like if you're a single mom, your student debt payments just went back on, even though they don't need to be, even though the government doesn't need your money. But now you're faced with a 400 to $500 bill. You got a child and your housing is insecure. You're going to take out a predatory payday loan. You're going to do what you have to do so you're not sleeping on the street with your child, right? And so now their debt, they're basically debt financing everything. We're having to debt finance our food, our shelter. And so what we're doing is we're taking that debt and we're collectively saying we cannot pay this debt and we will not pay this debt. Yeah. And so similar to the way workers are organizing around labor, we're organizing around the debt itself, which is funny because debt is older than money. It's pretty ancient. <laughs> it is more psychological than people realize. And we're using that as leverage. So, for example, when it comes to let's talk about healthcare because most people think of us as a student, us as a student debt organization. And I want people to see that we're doing a lot of really incredible work in spaces. So most um, medical debt 
is actually credit card debt in disguise because people are using their credit cards to pay for medical emergencies. And, you know, it's been a shit show to try to get any type of health care in this country. Every time we try to like pass it through, we meet roadblock after roadblock. There's all of these, you know, it's just incredibly difficult to work with the, you know, the insurance companies. There is a lot of, there are a lot of rich people that are working overtime to make sure that we don't get access to healthcare, right? And so what we're doing is we're saying, we're gonna use that debt, medical debt, as it's one of the most obvious ways that people see the way late stage capitalism like showing up in their lives and financialization showing up in their lives. They're like, wait a second, why the heck am I $20,000, $50,000 in debt because I had, because I broke a bone and I had to take an ambulance to the hospital? Like, that doesn't make any logical sense. And then they're like, oh, wait a second. I shouldn't have to pay this, right? And so that is our that is our philosophy. And we even have a book called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And so it's been really fascinating for me because it's really helping me understand what we were talking about in terms of abolition when we're talking about like the police really they're there to, you know, protect the class basically right protect property and then i had several discussions the police started out as um slave patrols um in this country and also basically to break up resistance movements workplaces and they targeted immigrants so a lot of times the immigrants got the shaft um during strikes and that sort of stuff and they were the the ones usually targeted by the police security forces private security like the Pinkertons. I'm from um, the Western Pennsylvania area, uh, the Homestead Strikes, uh, the Robber Barons, Andrew Carnegie. Workers were striking for um, better pay, uh, time off, uh, safety standards, working for like $2 a week or something like that. Um, and they, you know, so they're not going to take it anymore. And uh, so they brought in the Pinkertons and it was called the Homestead Massacre. So they just kind of started and started shooting them up and, and whatnot. And you know, we talked about a little bit with the prison population. There's always more money. So there's never, there's always cuts to like the, the deficit and the budget and the debt and blah, blah, blah. It's only important uh, when it's weaponized to limit social spending on social domestic programs, welfare programs, um, safety nets in society, which have been eroded for decades um, since the Reagan-Thatcher era, and it's only getting worse. Uh, it's basically been attacked by the right and the left since basically the New Deal was instituted, um, you know, over, I guess, about a century or so uh, ago. And one of those reasons, though, that there's more, uh, we have, you know, the highest prison population in the country, and we're, there's always more funding for more bars, more jails, more prisons, is because there needs to be a place for the superfluous, uh, superfluous population, the people that don't contribute to society, the people that don't contribute to production and don't have the money to buy goods, and certainly not luxury goods. So those people that uh, are marginalized, um, since there's no longer any safety nets, um, because we don't have you know, um, safety nets to help, you know, mental health or a functioning healthcare system. The U.S. doesn't have a, a healthcare system as a national scandal. Um, all these sorts of programs like, you know, lack of housing. Um, there's more vacant homes in America than there are homeless people. So there's not a, a homeless problem in America. There's a lack of will problem. But that's where the ruling classes decided to put the superfluous, to lock them up in prison. And that was part of, I did, did some uh, deep dive podcasts here, but talking about like, 
um, you know, the, the racial uh, origins to this uh, mass incarceration problem, you can go back to the Jim Crow South where black life was criminalized. Um, so, you know, they were, um, you know, the, the slaves were freed, but a lot of them eventually became sharecroppers working those same lands and renting from, uh, you know, the, the same uh, class of people. But the people that were disobedient or, you know, pushed back, they were just criminalized and criminalized black life. And that's kind of the origin for the disproportionate number of people in prisons right now. And then slavery, if you want to go to this, was never really ended. If you want to look at some of the the uh, prison forced labor statistics, people working for pennies a day. Um, and even in Texas, I talked to some police uh, or security guards, prison guards. Um, they don't even get paid they get uh, credited to for good time. First, so that's literally slave labor. They're not working. They're working, but not even getting any financial compensation. And obviously, the um, you know people in prison that are uh, you know getting compensated. It's again, it's certainly less than minimum wage. Maybe pennies a day, literally, uh, or a couple bucks a day. And then we can also go to. Um, you know, minimum wage, which is seven twenty-five an hour, which is not a living wage in any uh, city or any state in the country, let alone California, which is you know one of the most expensive states to live. And now I'm going to go back to just healthcare. Again, we don't have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a national scandal. Sixty-six percent of bankruptcies are caused directly from medical expenses, and a hundred million Americans or more um, are saddled right now with medical debt. That includes um, 530,000 families. This is a 2019 statistic, so it's a little bit outdated. And you would think in the United States, uh, a global pandemic would be the great, uh, would be the best opportunity to catch up with the rest of the world who have some form of universal health care. Uh, Medicare for all isn't necessarily a universal system. It's like an insurance plan. Uh, it's certainly not government-owned or publicly-owned and operated um, healthcare facilities, but you would think, you know, the pandemic would be a great opportunity to restart the economy, to give people healthcare, to address the climate crisis going on, to transform work, you know, work from home has even been taken away from us. So I, I brought up a lot there. Anything you want to add to? No, I think you're making a lot of great points. I think one of the things that you brought up in terms of like the history of, of our prison our mass incarceration country. Um, it does go back to, I think reconstruction is a really important period in our history that we don't learn enough about in school. And that is a really a key point in terms of debt as well, because debt was one of the first ways that, um, you know, newly freed black people were further penalized. So it was like, you know, there, of course, black life was penalized, but there were also like huge gains after reconstruction where, you know, people were starting their own communities. People were, you know, there was black Wall Street, like black people were making a lot of gains. And then it was like this rollback. Well, OK, now you're actually in debt. So now you're sharecropping. Right. And now you all whole bunch of money and you're basically doing the exact same thing you were doing when you were enslaved. Um, and so and then you get the Jim Crow laws that come up come up into fruition. So we start to see a lot of rollbacks. And I think that we're seeing kind of because of this, because this United States has a specific type of racial capitalism, like a lot of, even though we're constantly being told not to look at our history, I think understanding the dynamics of both um, the 
attempted erasure of indigenous people and, and their land, as well as the um, exploitation of, of black people to build um, this, you know, this country into this huge superpower, this financial superpower through forced labor. These, these two things are essential to understanding the way that racial capitalism works in the United States, and especially debt, the concept of debt. And one of the things we really like to bring up in the Debt Collective is really, we do talk um, about for example, Black women are disproportionately burdened by probably every debt type, but in particular with student loan debt. Um, we There's this analogy that I heard one time where it was like, if uh, if America has a cold, Black people have the flu and Black women have the bubonic plague. So it's like when you're looking at the issues that are affecting Black women, oftentimes you're, un you're understanding a lot of like, uh, different aspects that that are affecting many different people in society, families, uh, women, people of color, and so we really try to center those issues when we're when we're like um, doing our activist work. And I do have to shout out before I forget, so I make sure this is a shout out. We actually so we just developed what is called a student debt release tool. And we actually create a lot of different tools. We actually have a, um, I'll speak about the student debt release tool first before I go on a tangent. But so this tool is a really easy step-by-step -step guide that anyone can use. And what it does is it tells Department of Education, we know that you have the legal authority to cancel all federal student loan debt using the Higher Education Act of 1965. So this, this provision, the Higher Education Act of 1965 allows the Department of Education to simply not collect on the debt, right? It doesn't, the Department of Education um, or the United States government doesn't budget like a household. They can just simply not collect on the debt. And they do this already. The pause on student loan payments is another example of the, their legal authority to modify the debt. And so we have this release tool. You can find it um, if you go to debtcollective.org. You can find our release tool. And so far we've had, I have, we haven't announced this publicly, but we've had 20,000 people already fill out this tool. So we're trying to get more and more folks to do it. it creates a letter that gets sent directly to the Department of Education. So we're all about making things simpler and easier for people to use, easier for people to get the debt relief that they deserve, not just because we want to cancel all unjust debt, but also because we want to fight for college for all, fight for housing for all, fight for health care for all, and fight for abolition from you know police and prisons. So that's what we're using as as basically our tool. And it's funny because it's like the opposite of what the Department of Education currently does, which is overcomplicate everything, create a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, the Department of Education spent like, I think it was upwards of a million, over a million dollars on this application for Biden's failed student debt relief plan, which was only up to 20K. Did you think that was going to fail from the get-go too? Do you think it was set up to well, fail? I think Biden his, would have... He actually used the HEROES Act. Yeah, that's a good question. He used the HEROES Act of 2003 to administer his relief plan, which was also legal. It's completely legal still. It, but the thing about it, I think the, the key issue was that he announced the plan but he waited six weeks to roll it out and then didn't have an application. And so what that did is it gave the right ample time to throw bogus lawsuits at the courts to see what stuck. There were about six lawsuits, two of them stuck. Those lawsuits were also complete. They were laughable. They were like really, really bad. Like, I mean, one one of them was- well, well funded. 
But extremely yeah. well-funded, of course, extremely as always. Extremely well-funded. And we actually, Debt Collective did the fact-checking. We found out Mohila was claiming that they would lose revenue if the student debt relief plan went through. Turns Come to find out, they wouldn't. Um, there were emails leaked from Mohila staff saying that they regretted being part of it, the lawsuit. Um, and we have to also remember that the Supreme Court is more conservative than it's been in a century. And will be for at least another generation uh, as, you know, that's... That's maybe the only reason. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm never going to abandon electoral politics. I think I kind of agree with Chomsky, who's one of my favorite authors and philosophers. It should take all of five minutes of your time to decide who to vote for. Um, it, it's a quadrennial extravaganza that you know when the last one's over, you got to already start planning for the next one. And it, it's again minuscule differences between these two parties. Um, you know, if there's someone like Trump, probably if you're in a swing state, it might be a good idea to vote uh, against Trump. Uh, and if you're not in a swing state, you know, uh, if you're in a safe state, maybe you want to vote third party. If you're in a red state, probably doesn't matter if you show up and about half the electorate doesn't, you know, in the United States, give or take. Right. Uh, we can go to the Paycheck Protection Program, an $800 billion program that a uh, number of members of Congress got uh, credits, millions of dollars, some of them, and I did a podcast on it. Uh, and of course, that was <laughs> that that all went through, uh, and 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 that was again eighteen hundred uh, eight hundred billion dollar program. Right now, uh, student loan debt is about two trillion, give or take, so about half of that. Um, but this was just you know to kind of stimulate the economy. And then the studies came out that maybe twenty five to thirty five percent of those funds actually went to workers. So just as usual, the owner ownership class and the shareholders and the rich people essentially skimmed off the top, pocketed what they could, and whatever trickled down. <laughs> Here we go, using some 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 terminology that uh, is going to uh, get a stir out of people. But yeah, you know, more trickle down economics. But really, that that, that trickle is uh, you know. Uh, pretty, pretty, not much, you know, not, not much is, you know, going into, into the hands of the workers. And again, this paycheck protection program at the same time, Biden's plan was shot down. And then you get like senators and congressional officials saying, if you took out the loan, you got to pay it back. But, you know, omitted the fact that, Hey, I got a million dollars from the, the triple P program that I never paid back, you know? So it gives hypocrisy a bad name sometimes. And then also Debt Collective, we have to shout ourselves out because we actually were the first to start outing people about uh, their PPP loans. And actually the White House took our idea. I watched it unfold <laughs> on Twitter because I was on there. I do a lot of socials for Debt Collective. And um, one of the craziest ones I found out was OceanGate got a four, almost uh, half a million dollar PPP loan uh, canceled. <laughs> Ocean Gate. Those are the folks that built that submarine that imploded at the bottom oh, of the ocean. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was one. Of, that one was. But it's like clockwork. Anytime somebody's on on socials being like these student debt right. borrowers are lazy, you just look them up. I mean, it's yeah. public information, and they yeah. always somehow have a PPP loan <laughs> that they yeah. got canceled. And I, I didn't, uh, you mentioned the Jim Crow South. I wanted to get back to that. I wrote yeah, it down. Um, just one, just one little quip here. Hitler, Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, used the Jim Crow South laws as, as a template for, um, the, uh, Holocaust. So anyways, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, I think people don't really realize it. And that's why, um, very seedy, I've seen so much, very so much, history. 
Yeah, I think I've seen some other creators talk about this, how I think, you know, there was the uprisings in 2020. And I think one of the biggest backlashes that we haven't spoken as openly about is this rollback on education. I think there has been a concerted effort, obviously, on the right to really uh, double down on, you know, taking away our ability to look about, look at the past and learn from our mistakes and, and just become more aware of ways that we can build solidarity with one another, right? Um, and just kind of stoking fear, stoking conspiracy theories instead, stoking divisions instead. Um, so there is a very obvious effort to continue to do that right now. And I think uh, it's great that you're bringing those things up because I think that is one of the way, one of the connections with student loans, with <laughs> rollback on education, with striking down uh, affirmative action as well, which happened around the same time as, as them striking down Biden's student debt relief plan, which by the way, would have provided $40 billion in economic relief. And it would have especially helped um, African-American borrowers. As economic well. justice. Right. Economic <laughs> justice. And uh, I'm looking here at some stats. Medical debt in the United States, uh, 2022, $195 billion. Uh, I didn't research the credit card debt, but it's it's growing uh, greatly, especially since the pandemic. Is A lot of emergencies are not being used. Uh, credit cards are being used to pay for them. And then I have uh, $1.77 trillion, but I've seen some other figures, $2 trillion for the student debt uh, program. And a lot of the canceling the Biden administration has done has even kept up with the with the uh, additional, you know, money, uh, you know, adding to this to this total uh, debt crisis. So, um, you know, there's a lot of propaganda and self-congratulations from the Biden administration. But of course, their policies have been too little too late, um, you know, and as uh, millions of Americans are getting ready to um, start the repayment back um, in the next couple of weeks, um, could be 500 or more dollars uh, per month. And at, at the same time, we're in a cost of living crisis. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't sound like it's good news for a lot of uh, Americans right now. So our time is limited. Uh, let's kind of get right into it. Maddie Clifford, um, what was your uh, motivations? Uh, how'd you get involved in activism? Were you radicalized? Tell me a little bit about kind of your involvement in politics and you know now your involvement, I guess, with the Debt Collective, how this all come to fruition. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for me, I always kind of grew up because I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I grew up around a lot of like liberal politics, mostly. Um, but I do remember a lot of like protests when I was growing up. Actually, I remember WTO. Um, I remember the streets were full of uh, pepper spray when people, the protesters were getting pepper sprayed and it was this big, huge event. That's the World um, Trade so, Organization that was in Seattle? Yeah, the WTO protest. Yeah. yeah, it was like the battle in Seattle, right? Uh, so when I was growing up, I was always kind of surrounded by activists and activism. And I think for me, it was more figuring out what uh, issues meant the most to me and how I kind of was like navigating the world around me. I think a couple key moments radicalized me. I think just tr moving through the education system was very difficult. You know, I'm a child of the Reagan era, but also like I remember the Bush administration, no child left behind and standardized testing. I have a learning disability. I have dyslexia, which I was diagnosed in fourth grade and school was really, really hard for me. 
And I always felt really challenged, but I tried my absolute best. I also dealt with some really serious like uh, harm when I was growing up. My father was tragically murdered actually when I was in high school. And so it was really hard to focus in school. I had a really difficult time, but I managed to somehow by the skin of my teeth, make it out of, I graduated high school. I made it to the University of Washington and, you know, started taking classes. And I remember taking classes that were like on post-colonial literature. I was able to travel to South Africa um, in 2008 to learn about post-apartheid South Africa. And I really felt like I was kind of living my father's dream because he was actually a Pan-Africanist. He was, uh, he's originally from Jamaica. Um, so these type of things really politicized me and I've always been a pretty political person. But I also had this student loan debt. So I graduated from the University of Washington in 2009. I owed over $20,000 at the time, but the recession just hit and the um, economic collapse was occurring. The first bailout, you know, well, Wall Street was getting bailed out. People were occupying. I didn't really understand exactly what was happening, but I just knew it was a shit show. And also I couldn't find a good job. And I had a college degree. I was working $5 an hour for $5 an hour with AmeriCorps. And I, it was demoralizing. It was stressful. So I went to get my master's degree so that I could try to earn a higher wage. Um, but my, my degree was in art. And you're an artist as well, so you know, you unless you come from money, the people that are able to be full-time artists are quite often already come from money or they benefit from nepotism. They have a lot of connections within the arts world. Their parents encourage them because when you're an artist, you're essentially a small business. And so you get a lot of, you need startup capital, you need lots of support, right? To create your creative projects. And for me, I had kind of the opposite. And so I thought, oh, if I get an arts degree, a master's degree in my artistic practice, which happened to be poetry, they then I'll then I'll be able to to make it. And the funny thing is the degree was completely overpriced. It was Mills College, which is a small liberal arts college, which is essentially made for like wealthy white women. Kids, but yeah. um the funny thing about it was I actually ended up working in my field. I taught poetry to incarcerated kids for eight years in San Francisco. So it was one of the most amazing jobs going into jails and helping kids, not just with their emotional intelligence, but with their literacy skills through poetry and creative writing. And I also had a lot of background as an MC. So like I used hip hop to like get them excited about writing and excited about metaphors and similes and all those poetic devices. So I think all of those things really radicalized me. But more recently, why I, why I got involved with the Debt Collective is because in during the pandemic, it's like 2021. I mean, it's still pandemic. I guess it was like a little bit more lenient, but I was in a, a political education class and it was actually this organization called New Economy Coalition. They're actually out of the East Coast. And they were like, oh yeah, there's this organization called Debt Collective and they're striking their student loan debt. And I was like, striking your debt? You can do that? Like I was like shocked. I didn't even know that that was possible, but I had, I owed over a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to pay this shit back. The college I went to, this small liberal arts college, Mills College, they almost went bankrupt. They had a financial scandal. They ended up getting bailed out and now they're part of Northwestern University, but I didn't get bailed out. 
and the other women that I knew that got these really expensive degrees didn't get bailed out. And so uh, the rest is history. I started volunteering. I went to an action um, in DC. We marched around the Department of Education to pressure Biden to announce a plan. And then I started doing a lot of socials, uh, helping them with their TikTok. And it has been one of the best experiences of my life. I'm so happy to be part of a union because we like to say alone, our debts are a burden, but together they make us powerful. And so it really just helps me rethink a lot of uh, how I thought about my debt. Now I'm now it's like made me super radicalized and like hella socialist. I mean, I I, I was always anti-capitalist, but some of the socialists I knew when I was growing up, I just was kind of like they were always handing me hella flyers, and <laughs> they were like always a lot older, and I was just kind of like, ah. but now I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I, I see, I see what's going on. So it basically really radicalized me into like realizing um, this one quote: "In order for the earth to live, capitalism must die." So now I'm all I'm in it to win it. So <laughs> that's that my story. Yeah, I think that might be true, and I think you know the future of humanity. Um, you know, might be in the balance here. We got to act soon on this. Uh, you know, the debt crisis—it's—it's it's definitely a big problem. But I think the uh, and the cost of living crisis, but the environmental crisis could be the death of us all, including the species. Uh, I want right. to let's let's finish with some art stuff. But I did want to say, you know, the Occupy movement is one of the things that was, I guess, be, began my uh, path to radicalization. I've always been a leftist or, you know, a little bit anti-establishment. Now I'm a full-blown anarchist uh, as I kind of get deep into the readings and the philosophical ideologies, I guess, of these, um, you know, political movements and whatnot. I've never uh, read about or learned about a government I like, so that's kind of why I identify as an anarchist. I like to uh, challenge illegitimate authority. But uh, anyways, back to the Wall Street. Wall Street, again, got bailed out. Um, that's kind of built into the business plan. These greedy bankers make these risky investments that can be very lucrative. And they know uh, if they crash the economy, which they have time and time again, uh, the taxpayer will be there to bail them out because the um, you know the government is not a household. Uh, the uh, I'm going to do a podcast on the uh, Federal Reserve, but essentially it's a privately owned banking cartel. Um, so that's even, a, that's even another, uh, you know, I think a whole nother podcast, but anyways, I digress a little bit. Let's get into art. Let's, let's finish with some art stuff. We got maybe 10 more minutes. Um, do you think you need a formal background in art? Do you think you need to go to college and get a master's degree? What would you, what kind of advice would you give to people out there that are curious or maybe want to get into a career of art? You definitely don't need a master's degree, but on the other hand, it's a catch 22 specifically for black women in particular, just because we deal with the gender wage gap and the racial wage gap. So black women earn black women with a bachelor's degree essentially earn the same as white men with no degree. Um, and so oftentimes we're getting master's degrees, not just because we like going to school a lot. It's because we're trying to have a livable wage, have that access to higher edge or sorry, have an have access to healthcare because oftentimes your um your job is is what's gonna give you access to healthcare. And so in some ways I understand why people go to graduate school. I would and also some people say that master's degrees were worthwhile until black women started getting them. That's another thing that people talk about. Um, so that's you know so and essentially what I would say is 
no, I would, I don't encourage people to get a graduate degree. I think at this point there it's a scam unless it's like a full ride. I mean, then you should go, but there's a lot of ways. Like if you just create your own workshops with people, um, it depends on what kind of art you create, but there's so many ways that you can learn how to use, especially social media. Like you can use YouTube, you can use a lot of uh, social media platforms to learn pretty much anything now. And also just like write a shit ton, like write every single day uh, for an hour, two hours, uh, just get yourself writing as much as possible. Um, but at the same time, I also don't want to fall into that vein of saying that uh, college is, is worthless because I think that everyone deserves to pursue higher education. And it doesn't have to be directly tied to a job or a wage. If you're just curious about something, you should be able to like, actually pursue that and learn about it, whether it's philosophy or brain surgery. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And so I, think, I, I think college and education should be for everyone, not just for elites. I think that it okay. should be good to be curious about the world, to want to learn about it. Uh, I don't think that college or trying to advance your career or try to advance and gain a living wage or to go into an occupation that interests you should be, uh, should be you should be burdened by a lifetime of debt. So I a hundred percent, I think we are on the same page on a lot of stuff here. I don't think there's much you said, if anything, that I disagree with. Let's spend our last few minutes though, trying to pin down art. Uh, that's my favorite. Um, I don't even know if you would call philosophy an art, but that's my favorite, uh, I guess, avenue to uh, explore the world and kind of develop creativity or curiosity and trying to understand the world. So let's let's try to define some of these terms, uh, and well, let's talk about what, what what forms of art. So it sounds like you're a writer. Maybe talk about talk about the forms of art that you dabble in, and then let's go to some maybe we'll end with some higher level questions like what is art, beauty, and I want to ask you about muse and inspiration. So what what do you what, what kind of art and what kind of forms of creativity do you dabble in? Yeah, I I would say I'm a literary artist, so I deal with words, sound, and ceremony. So I've always been a performer. I've performed hundreds hundreds of stages. I've been to the Apollo Theater. I've As an MC, to- as an MC and a rapper. Yes, rapping, but also just like anything that's like acting. I've done acting, like so things on stage, or just also the old school version of MC where you're like hosting. Yeah. Like I've done all of that, um, and you you're also an MC as well, right? That's kind of my nickname. I did some. I did some internet raps. Uh, that's, I like. That's awesome. so it's more like a shout out to uh, Einstein, MC Squared. But yeah, I did a little MC yeah. MC raps, uh, and that's kind of how I view my podcast as, as kind of an MC. But no, I've actually not done any MC, any stand up, or anything like that. And I wouldn't even call myself an artist, although I am trying to write a book on philosophy. Uh, I think the podcast is a great way for me to get my ideas out there. Um, and then I think as I kind of finish um, some shows up, I'm going to start trying to put together this book. Um, but no, I, I would not consider myself an artist. I love to draw. I love art. I love beauty. I love philosophy. Um, but I don't think I would call myself an artist. And I don't think I'm a formal MC. It's more of a shout out to my boy, uh, my homeboy, Einstein, e equals MC. Right. <laughs> he, was, he was also dyslexic, by the way, which is which is cool. Yeah, no, I I kind of well, I personally feel like everyone's an artist, but like I, I get it, people might not necessarily identify with that, and that's totally fine. But I think, um, you know, there was when I went to the socialism conference. There's this amazing poet. Her name's Aja Monet, and she she recited this quote, and I'm forgetting where the quote comes from, but it really spoke to me. And it was, if you want to see how ugly the world is put something beautiful in it. And it really 
resonated with me because like right now we're dealing with a really unprecedented amount of like fascism and just like really harmful rhetoric and propaganda and conspiracy theories and sometimes it can feel like what the fuck is going on why is there so much ugliness in the world but then it's like there's also we're putting a lot of beauty in there like you, you know you having these conversations with people you know reading philosophy reading about anarchy you're starting to really put pieces together that are that are imagining a world not just imagining it but taking that that uh theory and you're thinking you're like how is this going to go into practice you're creating yes. something beautiful in the world that's going to have a backlash unfortunately yeah <laughs> um so that it helps us from being feeling crazy basically <laughs> if i could if i could quote some of the kids uh a lot of bad vibes going on in the world right now <laughs> i know right bad vibes all bad <laughs> so a few more minutes here let's pin down these terms yeah. what's art is, is art, uh, what does it mean to you? And I say, what is art? A lot of philosophers have tried to define it. Uh, maybe Immanuel Kant, uh, David Hume, some of my favorites. I don't know how far they got, but they at least tried to articulate and describe it. So, uh, but many have failed as well. So what do you think about it? Tell, 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 us, say... tell us as an artist, as an artist, what would you say? I do, I do, I do want to say this. I, I describe myself as a uh, part-time rhymer, working-class grinder. So I'm a full-time grinder like for that. sure. Maybe a little bit of rhyming here and there. Maybe a little bit of art, philosophical stuff. But I don't think I'm, I'm certainly no career artist or anything like that. I don't think I'm anything special or all that creative. Although I learn, I love learning about the world and I love educating myself and I'm always curious. But anyways, let's go to art. I'm curious about that. What is it? I think right now I'm playing with this idea of art as being both liberation in a container. So for example, rapping, so like with rap, like the origins of rap, it's in four counts, right? It's one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. It might be fast, it might be slow, but it it's a, a bar is four counts, right? And within those four counts, you can say whatever you want. Some rappers, Andre 3000 might say the most, immaculate incredible lyrically diverse rap and somebody else might just mumble right but it still has to fit in that container and so to me it's like it's a it's freedom in a container so like let's say you're doing stand-up comedy well there's still the container of comedy comedy needs to have a punchline so it's like you're you're getting free but you also have a container for that and I feel like for me, that's where I'm, I'm arrived right now with art, with creativity. It's like this gnawing to be free, this liberation, which it's almost like an oxymoron because on the one hand, you're hella free, you're hella improvising, but there's also, there's rules. Yeah, and there's like the structure. I can't just like throw stuff on a sheet of paper and say that's art. Unless I guess maybe the, what are, what are they, the impressionist people, I guess some people can, but there has to be right. some structure. I think, does there have to be, um, do we have, so is, is, is beauty part of art? Does there have to be some natural, um, you know, uh, depiction of nature, the environment, the universe, uh, uh, in art, it, it can be anything. Uh, I guess, what are those rules? That's what I'm trying to get at. What are those rules? What is that structure that you would say, this is art, but this is not art? And of course, it's not black and white, right? It's pretty gray. Yeah, no. I, well, actually, that's funny you would say that because I don't know if you saw Boots Riley just put out a, re uh, um, a series called I'm a Virgo. You should definitely check it out on Amazon Prime. Um, but the there's one part where they're talking about art, like all art is political. Like, even the idea that we think of nature as beautiful, even though nature 
can be so ugly and it can be so violent and it can be so, you know, so, but we automatically, when we see flowers, we think beauty, we think, you know, and that's all just our culture, right? That's all us romanticizing. So oftentimes as humans, we're putting onto art, our own belief systems, our own codes, our own structures. And so I don't really have an answer for you because right yeah. now you're asking the most deep question. question of all time, but I love these types of questions. I got a couple um, more here. Let's finish it up. <laughs> How about art in society? What emphasis does a capitalist society put on art? I mean, you hear so many stories about struggling artists and trying to get your way through school and working countless jobs just to kind of get by. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of emphasis on art. It seems like kind of a, a luxury for rich people a little bit to me in, in a capitalist society. Exactly. And also it's, it's entertainment. So there's a lot of the time the art, well, the vast majority of the art that we're consuming under capitalism is meant to entertain us and distract us from the challenges in our lives. And so it's often, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a distraction. And that's the difference between art that would be us freely, like, engaging and exploring the depths of human ability and creating for the sake of profit. So nowadays artists have to sit down if they want to be working artists, if they want to make money from their art, they have to sit down and be business minded. They have to think, how am I going, how am I going to make money from this? What's popular? What's not popular? Whereas some of the most influential art isn't necessarily popular and the masses don't like it right away. Right. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the times we, we think like capitalists like to say that, uh, it creates competition and it makes people better. But really what it does is it really waters down our creativity. And it really, it just like, even if you look at like pop music, I mean, pop music is essentially a lot of uh, really. Formula. Yeah, it's a formula. And a marketing campaign, mass marketing. It's oftentimes working class music or black music or brown music that's just been watered down for yeah. Yeah. widespread uh, consumption. So it, it doesn't create better art. Capitalism really messes up our artistic and creative abilities in so many different ways. So and a lot of artists seem like they're more appreciated posthumously. Uh, Is that how I say it? Humiously? Oh. Humiously? Whatever. You get yeah. the idea. When they're dead. They're appreciated <laughs> when they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about though? Um, art provides a lot of value to our our lives, right? It, it it can definitely have meaning for people, provide us value. It's a great thing for society and culture, isn't it? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I mean, I saw that. I feel like it was life or death, especially when I was teaching in juvenile hall. When I was working with kids, I really took my. I actually saw teaching as an art form yeah. because the best teachers show you where to look, but they don't tell you what to see. And it's almost like when you go to a gallery and you're looking at a piece, and you're it's different people are interpreting it in different ways. But I'm really showing them how to humanize themselves, how to. Um, you know, metaphors, metaphors are some of the most powerful devices. I mean, you know, I have a dream and like different speeches that have like stand, stood the test of time. A lot of the time, you know, even unfortunately, Hitler even talked about that the spoken word is one of the most powerful tools that yeah. you can use to wield power, period. No doubt. Right? And so I think that we really undervalue it, but at the same time, it's, it's all, it's all a tool. It's all a weapon that they, 
that they take from us and use in their own way. I actually found out that the MFA program was actually created by the CIA. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just found that out. Again, yeah. I found that out at the Socialism Conference. <laughs> but I was like, I was shocked, but not shocked. Like the Iowa Writers Com- Conference, that was like the origins of the MFA program, the mm-hmm. Masters in Fine Arts and, yeah. and Writing and Poetry. And I was like, wow, interesting. <laughs> so if it, if it was so worthless, why is the CIA all up in there? <laughs> They're all up in everyone's business. That's why. Right? <laughs> so uh, you said everyone's an artist. I agree. I think teachers are artists. I think uh, everyone can be an artist. You know what? I'm an artist. I said I'm not an artist. I'm an artist. Yeah, I mean, you I'm are an artist. artist. Okay? And I, 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 whatever my form is, podcast, philosophy, whatever, I'm an artist. And so is everyone. Yeah. Uh, uh, Aristotle, one of my favorite philosophers, also talked about the power of language, had a whole book on rhetoric. Uh, and he also right. said that uh, man, who back then, that's all that mattered, uh, rhetoric, uh, Aristotle was very, I mean, he had a lot of good stuff to say. He was very progressive for his time. Uh, but he was not very friendly to women or uh, to slaves at the time who were either born into slavery or were um, captives of war. But anyways, when he said man, that's what he actually meant. But he said man, who now I would say everyone, um, but he said man is a political animal. And I, I totally agree. I think almost everything we do is political. Uh, everything we do, everything we say. I'm always politicking every single day. And I think that's what politics is about. We shouldn't be worried about the quadrennial extravaganza every four years. Pick who you ever, pick who you want. Pick your, your Coke, your Pepsi, whatever. Not much of a difference. But every single day we should be uh, talking to people, having conversations. That's what I'm doing here right now. And talking about the issues that matter, not about what color suit someone was wearing or what tie someone was wearing or about the sex lives or the characters of the politicians. What I care about here on this show, uh, and necessary illusions is the issues and the ideas. Um, speaking of ideas, let's finish with this. You had said Andre 3000. I like him a lot. What about Big Boy and Outcast? You like Big Boy too, or are you more of an Andre yeah, 2000 person? <laughs> I Big mean, they're Boy's both good. great. They're both Big great. Boy always gets the shaft. I think Big Boy's awesome. I love the way he raps. Because he's like, because they're both so talented. But if Big Boy was like a, his, a solo artist, he would be like one of the greats too. Yeah. But he just happens to be right there with Andre. Yeah. But yeah. They're both, they're, they, they work so well together. So many, I've, I've listened to some uh, old school Outcast albums and they hold up outstanding. Uh, one of my favorites, maybe I'll go into some of my favorites are like Guru Gangstar. I love the Wu-Tang. Um, oh, yeah. Notorious B.I.G. East Coast. East Coast Till I Die. Sorry, we're going to have to beef on that one maybe a little bit. Okay. Let's let's end uh, Let's end with your, you know, what, what about the rap game, hip hop? What do you like? Do you have some favorite rappers you'd like to make mention or maybe some favorite albums? That's my last question. And then go ahead and promote whatever you want. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, the miseducation of Lauren Hill was like one of Ooh. the best albums of all time. Um, I would say, but some of my favorites, actually, I'm a big Nas fan, uh, just because of his lyrical ability is just like, and the way he paints these vivid pictures and tells these incredible, elaborate stories. Um, I would say... Who else is some of my favorite? I think on the West Coast, for example, there's so many talented, like in Oakland, I think we get known for like uh, a particular style, but you know, there's hieroglyphics crew um, from out here. And a lot of rappers that also like 93 to infinity have like written really incredible songs. And um, Zion I is another really dope ass rap group. And a lot of people in the Bay Area, rappers in the Bay Area specifically, they kind of like were at the onset of the independent movement in the early 2000s, where a lot of artists were like going indie instead of signing to these big record labels, which by the way, signing a deal is also a loan. (laughs) Signing a loan. Um, So those are some of my favorite artists, but I really... 
I really do. I'm a huge hip hop fan. And I really um, actually tomorrow I'm going to be in part of a um, an event called uh, Hip Hop Her Story, which is going to celebrate women in the Bay in Bay Area hip hop. And I put out a vodcast, a video podcast called What's Pimpin', which is actually exploring pimp culture in Bay Area hip hop. So check that out to KQED Arts. It's on KQED Arts. So yeah. That's what I've been up to. <laughs> you got any albums out? You got any like you released some songs or like kind of what's what what are you doing in the hip hop uh you know industry or whatnot? Yeah, so I put out a short form album recently called Down Chance, and that is available on Bandcamp. It's also on Spotify. I have a Spotify, Mad Lines, M A D L I N E S. Yeah, Mad Lines. And so that was a project that actually I was funded to do, and it was it's short form because all the songs are a minute long, and they're all about the climate emergency. I have some longer songs on there too, but um, that was the my latest album. And then I'm working on this collaboration with two other women. It's the What's Pimpin' collaboration. And it's really interesting because we're exploring pimp culture, which is also about exploitation and this idea of how does exploitation infiltrate, infiltrate relationships with men and women. Um, and so it's it's going to be really interesting and controversial, which I love. So Yeah, and that's, that's my problem with pop music is there's not as much, you know, working class themes, activist themes, uh, anti-capitalist themes, themes for solidarity coming together, too much violence, too much sex, too much drugs, all that kind of nonsense that sells, uh, um, you know, records and popular music and sells out stadium shows. Uh, I really want some more substance in, in popular music. So that's awesome to hear. You're actually putting some lyrical content that has meaning uh, to you in the, in the, I guess, the causes that you're passionate about. That's awesome. Uh, yep. This is going to, we're just going to wrap it up here. Anything Anything you want to tell uh, the audience, the the five or six people that listen to Necessary? No, I'm just kidding. We have no, we're, we're building our following. We're building our following. But I, I'd love yeah. to do it again sometime. We had some we had some good conversations. Uh, anything you want to add? Uh, anything you want to sign off on? Where can people find you? Any projects you're working on now, or any projects you think the listeners should check out? Definitely check out the Debt Collective, debtcollective.org. I have to shout out uh, the Debtors Union because anybody can join. You don't have to have any type of debt. Um, and it's just a really important movement that's only gaining momentum. So definitely check that out, our student debt release tool. We also have a tenant power toolkit that can help you if you're facing eviction in the state of California. And so that's something that you should check out. But yeah, you can just follow me, mad underscore lines on uh, Twitter. But I haven't been on Twitter as much because it's just uh, Elon. Uh, it's He's just ruining that app. I really enjoyed it. And he's trying I just to run it into the ground. He's trying, he's trying to buy into it, take credit for it, and then run it into the ground like every other project I really cannot. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> but it was great talking to you. Maddie Clifford, Flirt Cobain. It was a pleasure. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Of course. Take care. Peace. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Maddie Clifford, a.k.a. Flirt Cobain, a.k.a. Maddie Lines. We had a great discussion tonight on debt, culture, and art. And again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Thank you.